from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to start off today with advocates for the ballot initiative that would legalize abortion in Michigan through a constitutional amendment. We'll hear about the overwhelming swell of signatures for the initiative and the questions being weighed by officials about errors in the language for the proposed amendment. Then we're going to talk about kids and the pandemic. A new report says they're doing better and worse than before COVID-19. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So it's not often that politics is both animating and is directly under the control of voters. But right now, that's exactly where the issue of abortion stands here in Michigan. Let's go back to the spring when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned nearly 50 years of its own precedent and declared that there is no constitutional right to abortion. That ruling means that every state, every single state, has the opportunity to decide for itself what kinds of abortion access should be legal. Here in Michigan, if nothing else is done. A 1931 law that bans abortion pretty much across the board would be the law of the land. Again, that's if we don't do anything. But a really interesting group of reproductive freedom advocates has put together a ballot initiative to amend the state constitution to legalize abortion. They got about 800,000 signatures and they hope to have voters directly decide this issue in November. I can't remember in this state a bigger issue to go before voters uh, in terms of what we might have in our Constitution and what we might leave out of it. Tomorrow, the State Board of Canvassers, which consists of two Republicans and two Democrats, is likely going to decide whether to certify the reproductive freedom for all petitions. Notably, we already know a few things, though, about Michiganders and their views on abortion. We know that, like most Americans, most Michiganders want access to abortion to be legal. This is a pro-choice state. But despite that, there are some questions about the process of getting this measure on the ballot and how voters are responding to it. That is, what's the process been like for trying to get this in front of voters in November? How have Michiganders been responding to the many canvassers who have been out collecting all those signatures? Are they fired up about it or do they not seem energized? Uh, One of the things that people are talking about is whether this ballot initiative will inspire people uh, coming out to the polls who wouldn't otherwise and what effect that might have, for instance, on the race for governor or secretary of state or attorney general. We have been talking about this issue, of course, since the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe in the spring. And as the efforts to get this ballot question in front of voters took shape, we're going to continue to talk about it, of course, all the way up until uh, November if uh, this is certified. But today we want to talk with two people who've been in the thick of fighting for opening abortion access since the Dobbs decision this spring. Mark Brewer is an attorney for the Reproductive Freedom for All Ballot Committee and is also the former chair of the Michigan Democratic Party. Mark, welcome back to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Great to be with you again. Yes. Also with us is Lauren Kogali, who is executive director of the ACLU of Michigan and one of the leaders of the Reproductive Freedom for All Ballot Initiative campaign. Lauren, also welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Thank you, Stephen, for having me. And good morning, Mark. Hey, Lauren. <laughs> so, Lauren, I want to start with you. Uh, talk about how this campaign is going so far and that staggering number of signatures. Uh, it, it suggests, of course, people are very energized about this issue. Um, but I wonder what the temperature feels like from voters when uh, they're talking with, uh, with the canvassers. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, this is a ballot proposal where the people of Michigan are are leading over 700,000 voters in Michigan from every single county in the state signed a petition to put this amendment on the ballot in November because in the wake of the U.S. Supreme Court uh taking away the protections that we've known for 50 years under Roe and that people in Michigan have come to rely on. Um, the voters are speaking through their signatures and saying, you know, we know this is the way for Michigan to permanently restore the protections and the fundamental freedoms we had under Roe. Um, we have been met, signature collectors throughout this process have been met uh, with overwhelming enthusiasm for the ballot initiative and for voters to really use the tool of direct democracy to protect these fundamental rights for every single person in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about the decision to pursue this uh, through ballot initiative, why that was the choice and what that achieves that perhaps an effort to get something passed through the legislature uh, this year or next uh, would, would have been different. What what was it about a ballot initiative that, that was attractive? Sure. As you mentioned in your introduction, um, the, the coalition that initiated the measure is anchored by ACLU of Michigan, Michigan Voices, and Planned Parenthood Advocates of Michigan. Um, you know, the right to make decisions about pregnancy and abortion has been recognized as a fundamental right for 50 years <laughs> under Roe versus Wade. Um, and now that the U.S. Supreme Court has taken that protection away and sort of looking around the corner before that the Dobbs decision was issued um, and assessing the, you know, the different ways to proceed to protect uh, those fundamental freedoms under Roe, um, the ballot initiative uh, was identified as the clearest and most permanent way um, to ensure that the people of Michigan, not politicians, are making medical decisions on their own behalf and in consultation with their doctors about reproductive rights, about pregnancy, prenatal care, birth control. Yeah. Uh, so, Mark, uh, I, I want to talk about the ballot initiative in particular and the legal challenges that come up whenever we try uh, to have you know these questions in front of, of voters and and the particular objections that that some uh, Republicans, um, conservative groups really are are, are fighting uh, this particular proposal on. But but generally talk about this process here in Michigan. We, we have seen in the past uh, some trouble from time to time with people not exactly understanding what they need to do to make sure that uh, that these things are worded the way they they need to be and some things have been disqualified in the past but but talk about that and then talk about this particular uh, this particular initiative right Stephen. you know i've been uh, doing this ballot question work in michigan since the 80s and this process used to be a quiet sleepy uh, kind of affair. <laughs> Nobody knew who the Board of Canvassers was or really much cared about the process. Uh, we've long had a process to, to amend the state constitution. Um, most Many states do not allow uh, what we allow here, which is by direct voter initiative. And there's a process set up inside the states to make sure that the form of the petition, you know, the wording of the petition, as well as the number of signatures are sufficient. Um, it's generally handled by the nonpartisan professional staff of the Secretary of State's office, been doing that for decades, overseen by a bipartisan board, two Democrats, two Republicans, generally designed so that the two major political parties can kind of keep an eye on each other. Mm -hmm. uh, that board's duties are very restricted in terms of what it can do. Make sure the forum is proper make sure there are enough signatures, and then it's to get out of the way 
and let the process go forward. And if those two prerequisites are satisfied, let the voters have their say. What's occurred uh, over the course of time is that people have discovered that this guardian of a process is also a choke point. It's also a place where um, objections can be raised and if things aren't sufficiently politicized, people's access to the ballot can be blocked. And we've seen that uh, time and again, and often there's a resort to the courts as a result. If this board doesn't function properly, courts make the ultimate decision. Unfortunately, that's what we're seeing happening here. Um, this proposal gathered a record number of signatures for the reasons that Lauren described. They filed three quarters of a million signatures, collected far more than that. Nobody has ever collected that volume of signatures. So there's huge popular support for this getting on the ballot. Our opponents haven't challenged the signatures. What they have instead done is come up with a ridiculous, a never tried before, argument that somehow the spacing between the words in the proposal means that it can't go on the ballot. Um, this board doesn't have jurisdiction over that. Um, that's a challenge that's never been brought before. Matter of fact, we have constitutional amendments, Stephen, that actually have defects in them, mm -hmm. omitted words and so forth, and they're in the Constitution. So, that, you know, this is the kind of objection that you make when you're desperate uh, to really try to block something from the ballot. Uh, the board will take up that challenge tomorrow. It's beyond its jurisdiction. It really doesn't have the authority to throw this off on that basis. But again, um, because it takes three out of the four votes to put something on the ballot, that gives somebody at least an ostensible reason to say no. The board should not do that tomorrow. They should do their duty. They should get certified four to zero. But there is this possibility that this ridiculous, arcane new argument could be used in an attempt to keep this proposal from the ballot. So, so how different are these objections from things we've seen in the past with regard to, to ballot initiatives? The, the wording does come up from time to time. I haven't, you're right, I haven't seen one where they talk about, you know, missing spaces and, and you know, uh, saying that that makes for garble, I guess, uh, in, in the language. But, but wording is one of the things that, that they look at, isn't that right? Right, but there's two types of wording, one of which the board has jurisdiction over, the other of which it does not. The board has jurisdiction over the, the wording on the petition, you know, the warnings that people see mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. And there's a lot of that. This is a very complicated petition form for anybody who's ever seen one or signed one. The board does not have jurisdiction over the content of the actual proposal. That's up to the sponsors. And the courts have been very clear for decades in this state that that is not the board's responsibility, that if there's a dispute over the content, that's only resolved by the courts after the election. And matter of fact, the professional staff of the board said that in a memo uh, that they issued that, again, this is beyond the jurisdiction of the board. So that's what our opponents have focused on, this alleged lack of spacing um, between the words in the actual proposal. Mm -hmm. On that issue, the board has no jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Lauren, I want to talk about that partisan split on uh, on this issue. As I said, it's you know it's conservative groups who are who are challenging the the placement of this initiative on the ballot in November. But but we know, I think, from things that have gone on here in Michigan and things that have gone on in other states that this isn't a left right issue in quite the way some other issues are. In other words, there are lots of Republicans, uh, lots of people who would consider themselves conservatives who also are concerned about reproductive freedom. It's, a, it, it's an issue that cuts beyond Democrat or Republican. That's right. I mean, this is an issue that fundamentally is about our freedom to make decisions about our most personal medical needs. Um, it impacts every single person in this state. 
and it certainly acro- cuts across partisan lines. And I, you know, I think we have seen that in the voter turnout in Kansas. I think we uh, will continue to see that as a, a motivator for people to register to vote. And we've seen that, quite frankly, in the overwhelming support um, in collecting, you know, almost a million signatures, uh, seven over seven hundred thousand of which were turned in. Um, for purposes of certifying this ballot initiative. And, you know, the Mark so succinctly summarized the duties of the Board of State Canvassers mm-hmm. tomorrow. The question before the Board of State Canvassers is simply whether the signature requirement has been met. And the director of elections, uh, you know, who is uh, nonpartisan, has recommended certification of the ballot. And to ignore that um, would be a step towards disenfranchising um, voters across the state of Michigan and from all 83 counties in the state. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Mark Brewer, uh, an attorney for Reproductive Freedom for All, the ballot committee that is uh, trying to get a ballot initiative on the November uh, election for uh, a constitutional amendment that would legalize abortion here in Michigan. Uh, also with us is Lauren Kogali. She's uh, executive director of the ACLU of Michigan, one of the leaders of the Reproductive Freedom for All ballot initiative campaign. Uh, we're talking about uh, tomorrow's likely decision by the Board of Canvassers to either put this on the ballot or or not. Um, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about this uh, ballot initiative. Did you sign this petition? Uh, are you somebody who's seen the canvassers around uh, asking for signatures on this issue? Do you think this is something we should vote on here in Michigan in November? Uh, or would you prefer a legislative solution to uh, the question of how legal uh, abortion is here in Michigan? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Jen on Twitter says, uh, am I excited? No. Am I glad to see so many working for it? Yes. Will I be relieved when it passes so I can ensure that with my qualified, educated doctor and or nurse, I can make the best decision for me as a person for my health and dignity and well-being? Yes. Uh, Mark, I want to talk a little about what might happen if tomorrow you get a 2 2 tie uh, on on this question if the two Republicans uh, say no, if the two Democrats say yes, what, what, what's the next step? Well, the next step would be uh, going to court. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Stephen, the court's been very clear over the years, for decades, in fact, uh, that this, this board's duties are what we call ministerial, that it has these two narrow duties in this context. Are there enough signatures? And is it the form of the petition um, okay, by the way, this form has been approved at least twice by this board already, so that should not be in dispute tomorrow either. But the next step would be uh, to go to court to get a court order to uh, direct the board to place this on the ballot, and um, ultimately that decision will be made by the Michigan uh, Supreme Court here, and it will have to be made quickly. Uh, one good thing about our Michigan courts is that they do decide these election matters very quickly, all this needs to be wrapped up by September 9th hmm. when it's uh, necessary to have the entire ballot for the state of Michigan settled so they can start printing ballots. Yeah. Uh, are there other uh, paths of recourse for uh, the opponents of, of this ballot initiative if they were to lose, for instance, tomorrow, if you got three votes to put it uh, on the ballot? What, what Could they also go to court, I guess, to, to press this issue? Yes, yes. I mean, again, one of the great things about our system is that there are always options, right? You can always appeal. Um, and so, um, yes, uh, a, a loser tomorrow, um, you know, suppose our side gets the correct result, which is that this goes on the ballot. Our opponents could certainly uh, take that to court and question whether the board uh, did the right thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Karen in Macomb. Karen, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I find the whole spacing issue is just ridiculous beyond belief. Um, I've, um, you know, participated in different uh, petition um, 
circulation, you know, getting the signatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I signed this petition, and then also um, I came in at the very tail end, and I asked for a couple of um, petition sheets. I have, um, you know, quite a few elderly neighbors on my block that I knew they would not be able to get out in public to mm-hmm. sign, so I just, you know, went and made it convenient uh, for them to find, and they were more than happy and grateful to do so. Um, and one last thing, uh, my heart goes out to the law professors next month in trying to teach constitutional law <laughs> to their new students. It's like, are you kidding? Yeah. How in the world are they going to be able to teach about stare decisis <laughs> and... Um, it, you know, yeah. um, it looks a little different these yeah, days, doesn't it, Karen? So, so Karen, oh, I, 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 Karen, I also want to ask you about where you live uh, in in Macomb and the, I guess, the reaction and the response that you're getting in your community. You said you you circulated a couple of uh, petition sheets. What what are people saying to you about this issue? Well, again, um, these were senior neighbors that uh-huh. I have, so they're homebound, uh-huh. um, and they they were so happy and so grateful. Um, you know, I reached out to um, another resident, and I asked her, I said, uh, do you know anyone else who wants to sign? So we worked together on that, mm-hmm. and I just went to the homes of the seniors that, you know, they're, they're homebound. They just are not able to get out into public places. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that, that was just really an honor to do that. Otherwise, you know, if you don't have that option, you're missing, um, you know, a, a very important part. Yeah, of, you're left out. Yeah, yeah. Karen, I, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and, and the information. Uh, Lauren Kagali, I want to ask you what, uh, if this doesn't get on the ballot for some reason, uh, if, and I think this is probably unlikely, but it could happen, it gets on the ballot and, and it fails, what would be the next, the next step for, for uh, reproductive freedom in Michigan? Yeah, thanks for um, that question. I will say, first of all, you know, we are confident. Uh, I think, you know, we've seen the swell of support in Kansas. Um, We know that this is um, an issue. Uh, We've seen time and again that Michigan voters value the right to make their own decisions about pregnancy and parenthood. And we are confident that voters will reflect those ballots, values at the ballot box in November. Um, and, you know, thank you to people like Karen who um, were out circulating petitions and making more accessible people uh, for people who were not otherwise able to sign the petition, giving them the ability uh, to make their voices heard in that way. Um, you know, we can look to other states where abortion bans are currently taking mm-hmm. effect, Texas, Kentucky, to see what the potential impact of not passing this constitutional amendment could be. People being forced to carry pregnancies, doctors having to consult with lawyers before exercising their medical judgment, people having to travel hundreds of miles to seek necessary medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, the end result is this not passing means that an abortion ban will take place in Michigan. Michigan people have the right, Michigan voters have the ability to restore the rights that we have had under Roe for 50 years. Um, and I feel absolutely confident that um, that they will take that opportunity in November. Okay. Uh, Lauren Kogali and Mark Brewer, it was really great to have both of you here to help explain the, the ballot petition and uh, what's likely to happen tomorrow at the Board of Canvassers. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue talking about state politics, but we're going to pivot to kids in a new report that highlights the well-being of Michigan children after the pandemic. They are both doing better in some regards and worse in others. Alex Rossman of the Michigan League for Public Policy will join us to talk about it next. Stay with us for more Detroit Today.
listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. None of us will be here forever, but kids, our nieces, our nephews, our younger cousins, our children will likely outlive us. And much of their future is dictated by what we do right now. Their lives very much won't live on, at least not in a good way, without our positive influence. And that makes it all the more important that we guide them on the right path in the country and in our state. A recent Kids Count report reveals that we should be doing a better job of that, especially right now in Michigan. It notes that the state ranks 32nd in terms of child well-being. Now, to be sure, there have been improvements in the lives of Michigan children. Federal spending during the COVID pandemic significantly reduced child poverty. And, of course, it helped out parents as well. But it also drove up depression among young people. The the disruption of COVID-19 did, probably because they were trapped inside and frequently separated from their friends and their lives. But there's a lot more that this Kids Count report reveals, and we want to talk the rest of the hour about what's in it and what we should be doing to make the outlook for Michigan children much better. To discuss it, we have Alex Rossman here with us. He is the External Affairs Director for the Michigan League for Public Policy. Alex, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Thanks for having me today. So let's start with an overview of this report. Michigan ranks 32nd in terms of child well-being. That's not a good number. But what does it mean? What does that look like? And what was the Kids Count data report actually measuring here? Uh, so uh, the NEKC Foundation uh, is a national organization that puts together the Kids Count report each year um, to look at child well-being from a national standpoint, uh, how kids are doing across the country, um, and then looking at child well-being in each state and, and ranking states so that there's some uh, context for how states are doing in child well-being. Um, and the report looks at uh, four broad categories of economic well-being, education, health, and family and community factors, and then ranks um, uh, states in each of those categories. Uh, and then within those categories, there are uh, four domains of each kind of looking within. So economic well-being looks at um, poverty, uh, uh, health looks at health care coverage. Um, so uh, overall looking at 16 um, different data points to uh, put together a composite of how kids are doing in the state and country. Yeah. And some of these are, I guess, what you would call hard data about things like um, income or, you know, access to medical care and things like that. And then there are kind of softer measures like emotional well-being. Talk about the difference, I guess, uh, between those kinds of, of data inputs and then what, what Michigan looks like when, when, we, uh, when we think about what's happening here. Yeah, uh, some of these categories and, and indicators are things that uh, uh, Kids Count looks at uh, each year. Um, and then, uh, in particular, this report took a much closer look at uh, the mental health and well-being of our youth, understanding that um, uh, they, like all of us, have been through a lot the last few years, um, uh, but are particularly uh, 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 developmentally, uh, sensitive, emotionally impressionable, and that it just, uh, uh, is a tough time, uh, frankly, to, to be a kid and, and going through all of this. And so there was a close look at, um, uh, mental health for youth, um, and some, uh, data around that. Um, and then I think bridging the two, uh, kind of, uh, data categories or, or indicators that we look at, um, is, is just the increased awareness of how much a parent's well-being or a household's well-being is impacting kids. And, um, you know, that is not always uh, uh, top of mind in our policy decisions or discussions. Uh, but, um, you know, if a, if a parent loses a job or is struggling financially, 
um, directly or indirectly, that's causing stress for the kid. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, certainly the um, uh, pandemic and the health factors, um, uh, one of the things that the, the Kids Count Report noted was how many kids that lost a parent or caregiver mm-hmm. to, to the pandemic. Um, and so uh, there's, you know, even within the, the mental health discussion, there's two different layers. There's kind of the um, uh, severe or direct trauma uh, related to losing a loved one, losing a classmate um, uh, to COVID-19 or, or other factors. And then there are the stressors of, you know, being away from school and friends for a long period of time, trying to uh, connect virtually more, um, uh, parents losing jobs or uh, struggling to make ends meet and how much that impacts uh, emotional well-being too. So I think the the report does a good job of, of looking at, at both. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that uh, the Michigan League for Public Policy tries to do in all our policy discussions as well is, is look at um, the hard data and, and the statistical information, but also getting that community context, that first-person context, you know, doing focus groups and community meetings and, and discussions with, with young people and parents about uh, what they're feeling um, and knowing that that's an important consideration as well as the hard numbers. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Alex Rossman. Uh, he is External Affairs Director for the Michigan League for Public Policy. We're talking about the Kids Count Report, uh, which has some good news in it about what's happening for children here in the state of Michigan and, and some worse news uh, in terms of the ways in which we protect our kids, make sure they have all the opportunities uh, that they need. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Are you a parent? Uh, how are your kids doing these days? Call and tell us about what's happening with your children. Do you feel like they need more help, more assistance, more help financially maybe than they did before COVID-19. Talk about how the federal assistance that came during the pandemic changed your financial situation. Did it really help you uh, make sure that your kids could have everything that they need? Uh, This is the first week of school for many people here in Southeast Michigan. For some kids, this is the first time going back full-time to in-person learning. Uh, What's that look like? What did the years of disrupted learning look like for your children and what effect did that have on them not just academically but what effect did that have on their emotions Uh, give us a call and update us on what's going on in your family right now and what you need what you need from government what you need maybe from businesses what you need from the community uh, to better gird uh, the childhood that's so important for all of our kids. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Um, Alex, before we get to our listeners, uh, I want to talk about the comparison between Michigan and other states. we don't do well. Um, why is that? What's What are we not doing that other states are doing? And maybe what are we doing that other states are not? Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that question. Um, as you mentioned, um, overall child well-being, we rank 32nd in the nation. So we are uh, in the bottom half of states in child well-being. Um, we rank 29th in economic well-being and family and community context. And our lowest rank, we're in uh, the bottom 10 in uh, education at 40th. Um, And then our best rank uh, was uh, 27th in health. And actually, uh, we are the fourth best state in the country for kids uh, being insured. So there are some bright points, um, even within those rankings. I think overall, seeing that we are still in the bottom half of states, we're still behind the pack. We are the lowest ranked um, overall, as well as I think in each category in the Midwest. And so when we think about being a competitive place for businesses to locate, for families to want to stay and raise their families, we look at our neighboring states um, as a benchmark of that. Um, and one thing I did want to uh, 
note is that even though we're still ranked low in these categories, um, in economic security in particular, every indicator that the, the Kids Count book looks at, we have improved. We just haven't improved enough to keep up with, with other states. And so I think we have been moving in the right direction in some regards. But, um, you know, as, as many people are, are aware, um, Michigan was, was hit particularly hard by the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of economic struggles. And with those economic struggles, unfortunately, came uh, rough fiscal years in the state budget. And there was, you know, we talk a lot at the league about a decade of disinvestment that, um, you know, cut school funding, cut road funding, uh, you know, uh, made, uh, made decisions that were based on uh, finances that led to the Flint water crisis and, and other things like that. And so we're, we were farther behind a lot of states because of uh, that disinvestment. And I think we just have more ground to make up. I do uh, do believe we are we are trending in the right direction, including in the most recent budget that was just passed last month. I think there has been increased bipartisan uh, uh, agreement around investment um, and investment in kids, and, and in particular, uh, uh, needs of families with lower incomes. Not just investing in kids through uh, school funding, but looking at improved housing and childcare and those other needs that support families and in turn benefit the kids. So so we have uh, a ways to go, but I am optimistic that the budget and policy decisions that have been made the last two years are really going to bump up our rankings in another few years. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Alex Rossman of the Michigan League for Public Policy, and we want to get to you on the phones and on social media. Call and tell us what challenges your kids are facing now that the pandemic is over. They're back to school, so many of them, in person, full time. What are the things that you notice that they're struggling with, perhaps? What are the things that uh, you're doing to try to bring some more normalcy back to them? Also, uh, give us a sense of the things that you think we need to be doing as a state, as a city, as a region, to make life for kids a little better increase opportunity, minimize the kind of suffering that so many kids endure. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest right now is Alex Rossman. He is External Affairs Director for the Michigan League for Public Policy. We're talking about a Kids Count report from the Annie Casey Foundation that talks about uh, how our kids are doing on a number of different factors. Our kids here in Michigan are thriving in some ways and not thriving in others. Uh, why is that true? What are the things that we could do to in- increase the outlook or uh, make the outlook better for our kids? Um, we want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Call and tell us how your kids are doing. Uh, are they back in school this week? So many kids did go back to school yesterday for the new school year. Some of them going back full-time in person for the first time since the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's one of the things that the Kids Count Report and lots of other things that we have seen talk about when we talk about how our kids are doing, uh, whether they're struggling, whether they're struggling not just academically, but emotionally and socially from the isolation of the pandemic. Give us a sense of what challenges you see your kids facing right now that maybe you didn't have uh, in your lives before the pandemic. How are you dealing with those things? Uh, How are you helping them adjust back to life uh, as normal 
as uh, whatever that term means now after the pandemic. Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Alex, I want to talk about the – we were talking before the break about the differences between Michigan and other states. There are also some notable differences among counties here in Michigan and especially here in southeast Michigan. How do kids fare in Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb counties, and what are the differences uh, we see there? Uh, yeah, so uh – in addition to the National Kids Count report that the Annie Casey Foundation puts out, uh, the Michigan League for Public Policy has our own Kids Count project. We put out uh, similar data for uh, all counties as well as the cities of Detroit, Flint, and, and Grand Rapids. And, and the two reports work together to kind of uh, give a comprehensive, holistic look at how kids are doing from the local level on up to the national level. Um, for uh, Southeast Michigan in particular, and, and following a few trends that um, uh, were pretty universal in, in all counties, um, that looking from uh, 2010 to 2020, uh, poverty went down in 82 of 83 counties, child poverty. The lone outlier was uh, Luce County in the Upper Peninsula, um, uh, overall, uh, we saw, uh, a lot of counties while child poverty went down the, uh, number of households in poverty or the Alice threshold, which stands for asset limited income constrained employed. So essentially people who are working, but still struggling to make ends meet that has gone up in a lot of counties, although, um, uh, that, uh, rate also improved um, in Southeast Michigan. Um, and then a, co- a couple other um, areas that uh, Southeast Michigan and, and Wayne, Oakland, and Macomb followed uh, broader county trends. There was definitely a, a strong decline, uh, strong in terms of how many different counties saw this decline in the number of three and four-year-olds in preschool, um, potentially impacted by the uh, pandemic and health concerns, um, and then uh, less than adequate prenatal care is another area that uh, declined in a lot of places. Um, but at the same time, uh, uh, the region and, and county saw uh, birth, uh, births to teens go down. And so um, uh, a little bit of uh, 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 good news um, and a little bit of uh, uh, enlightenment on what areas we need to keep working on to improve. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Dan in Southfield. Dan, welcome hey, to the show. Hey. Dan, good to talk to you. Sure. I work at a nonprofit down in Detroit, Detroit White Busters. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I, don't, I hear all this stuff about how we're getting better or worse or these statistics. There's a combination of private prejudice and poor public policy that have led to the kids in my neighborhood mm-hmm. having to walk by a burned-out crack house every day to go to a crappy school, where, and, 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 and then they get home, and, and they're part of a multi-general relation or series of poverty where parents don't have the coping skills themselves, and something's got to be done about this, and something serious, and not just using these statistics you know, it's a it's a certain concentration of people we know who we're talking about mm. that get totally hosed by this situation. Okay, and their kids are going to grow up. They're going to live here with us. Okay, mm. and they're going to be citizens of our community. We better damn well think about that. Yeah, uh, Dan, really appreciate the call and and the comments. And you know, I think it'd be hard to argue with the, the many of the points that you're making there, uh, Alex Rossman. Is there, you know, this, com- I, I like the way he's, he put that, this combination of, you know, private prejudice and public policy that really makes turning things in a different direction really difficult here in, in Michigan. And you, you have pointed out some things that we are doing better, but it seems like we're always kind of pushing uphill on, on, this, on this issue. Uh, yeah, it is certainly um, a, a challenge navigating um, uh, the existing uh, disparities um, 
uh, by race and ethnicity, by income, by geography. Um, you know, as I was saying earlier, we try and use the, the data and statistics as one part of the equation and then try and get that community input and voice as another part um, to really make the case for um, uh, why investment in certain kids or certain communities benefits us all. And I do think this is uh, certainly uh, a long road ahead, but something that we are making progress on. You know, the, the investment in uh, schools passed in the, the most recent budget, not just across the board per pupil, but the um, increased investment on uh, kids in high poverty schools, kids with special needs, kids that are not um, uh, uh, original uh, English language speakers. Um, uh, and so I think there is some movement and awareness to needing to um, place a greater emphasis on certain areas or certain po uh, populations. You know, we talk about this at, at the league a lot that, um, you know, there is a difference between equity and equality and that in a lot of communities and for a lot of populations, similar to uh, our state falling behind uh, our national peers, we have let certain areas fall behind others. And we need to look at policy decisions and investments that, that try and make up that ground and, and give a greater boost to the kids that need it the most. Mm -hmm. I think we are moving in that direction, but certainly agree that there, there is a long way to go, that there still unfortunately is, is an ideological and rhetorical divide on some of that that we continue to see um, and it, uh, it, again, it's, it's a comprehensive uh, uh, effort and that part of it is using data. Part of it is, is having discussions with community partners, community members, um, the media, policymakers, trying to get all of us invested in betterment of all our kids for the good of our state. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, thanks very much for the call, Dan. Uh, let's go to April in Detroit. April, what's on your mind? Hi, we're talking uh, with the, the screener a little bit about um, the, how my child is adjusting to, to school. I have a junior in her second day of school, and we're in the U-Prep system. And, you know, I, what I do like is that the school is asking um, students and staff to mask, and it just kind of helps to ease my mind a little bit. But it's amazing to me how adaptable the kids are, and, you know, they're going in, and, and it's, it's normal now to them, which is, you know, good and bad. Mm. But... I, I really see that there, my daughter being adaptive and, and, and her friends adapting to also, you know, talking about the socialization, using technology more. Like, you know, they do video calls and, and you know, things that obviously, you know, I, I, we never had in our generation. Um, I think it would have been a lot more difficult for us socially when we were younger, but they stay connected in, in ways that um, we could have never imagined. So, you know, overall, the pandemic has been, you know, obviously it, it's a, a shift in our our reality in our life, but I really do think that the, the kids are adjusting and figuring out ways yeah. um, to stay connected and, and stay healthy. Yeah. Uh, April, I really appreciate the call, and good luck to your daughter in her junior year. Um, Alex, is there a measure for the kind of resiliency that April's talking about here uh, in, in any of the kids count data? You know, kids do adapt, of course, and they figure things out. There are also lingering effects of, of what they're adapting to, uh, and I think I feel like that becomes clear in the data. I'm wondering if if their resiliency is is evident there as well. Uh, well, certainly in uh, in a general sense, I really appreciate that point. I I think uh, about that a lot. Um, uh, my kids are at the other end of the spectrum. I have four-year-old twins that went off to preschool for uh, the first time today, um, and uh, they have been at home uh, the last two years and had a very small circle. But just in general, I think we see uh, from, from technology to interpersonal interaction, there is a flexibility to young people that just unfortunately wanes the older we get. Um, and I think, uh, I think there has been some of that. Uh, uh, the data collection is, is honestly uh, a few years behind the state of things. So, so the data is from uh, 2020. And so we don't yet have the other side of the pandemic. We kind of are, are measuring more like at the, at the high water mark of severity of the pandemic and, and uh, apprehension there. So, 
Um, again, it's another instance that I think in another year or two, we will be able to measure a little bit more uh, uh, concretely that, uh, that adaptability. But I do think conceptually that's, that's very true. Um, and I also uh, appreciate the discussion around um, some of the uh, changes that, uh, that were brought about because of the pandemic that are like, likely going to be permanent. Um, and uh, the use of technology is, is one in particular. Um, I actually was in uh, Detroit a couple weeks ago for uh, a day-long program on uh, Internet for All and the state's efforts to um, improve Internet access and infrastructure. And, and in prepping for that uh, discussion, I, I talked to a, a few friends um, with older kids and some of our high schools are almost 95% online now. They're taking their standardized tests online. They're wow. taking tests and quizzes. They're not even getting textbooks. They're doing it all online. And so um, there is an evolution there happening, but it also is another area where we want to make sure that that's not causing disparities, that, you know, the income correlation to technology access needs to be an important consideration as well. Yeah. Okay, Alex Rossman of the Michigan League for Public Policy. It was really great to have you here for this conversation about Kids Count. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. All right, thank you very much. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with a data analyst about how home auctions in Detroit and Wayne County are going to go. That auction is going to start up again this week. Then we're going to talk with the new president of University of Detroit, Mercy. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.